I think the idea of, of, of everything having to be consistent at the same time, I think, is it isn't some moral virtue. the internet you are listening to changed my mind with luke t harrington the show where i talk to people who have changed their minds about something big um i'm luke t harrington i'm an award-winning novelist a best-selling humorist and noted perpetrator of widespread voter fraud um not really just for the record there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud um and if you don't know now you know. Um, on this episode of the show, I had an old friend of mine on, uh, Jasper Abbott, uh, who I knew years and years ago, um, back when I occasionally hung out on the campus of the University of Tulsa. Um, anyway, these days, Jasper is an attorney in Atlanta, um, was part of the push to turn Georgia blue, uh, which we talked about a little bit in the interview. Um, but what I talked to him about on this episode is his shifting perception of single payer healthcare. Um, was once a libertarian, believed everything should be based on the free market. But after having to deal with a chronically ill wife has changed his mind about that. So. I'll go ahead and let Jasper speak for himself. I'm going to flip you over to the interview, and I will see you on the other side. Jasper, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Jasper is a lawyer and attorney in the Atlanta area. Uh, dealing in the world of medical malpractice, uh, which is pretty cool. Jasper's someone I used to know many, many years ago, but we've kept in touch on social media. He um, reached out to me the other day and said, I would love to come on the show and talk about single-payer healthcare, which is something I'm very interested in and something I'm sure that you have uh, a great deal of insight about. So, before we get started, um, do you want to introduce yourself, tell people what it is you're doing these days? I was born and raised, I'm 34, I was born and raised in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, went to Kansas for college and then back to Oklahoma for law school. Came a lawyer, passed the bar and all that good stuff. Uh, spent about eight years in Oklahoma practicing law. Um, my wife decided she wanted to get a PhD in psychology. Um, so we moved um, partially for that purpose and partially to be close to some family members out here. Uh, we moved to Atlanta so she could pursue that degree and been out here about almost two years now practicing law. Uh, have We have one son who's five and that's pretty much what I've been up to for the last couple of years and, and trying to avoid the pandemic, obviously. <laughs> right on, right on. Um, I don't know if you mind my, my mentioning this as we are recording this, we're recording this about an hour 
after a guy named Joe Biden gave his presidential victory speech. <laughs> um, and it sounds like you were uh, one of the people on the ground involved in turning Georgia blue. Am I right? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so that's actually kind of funny because um, I was actually on the board of college Republicans in uh, University of Kansas when I was in college. Uh-huh. Um, my... So historically, I've been a libertarian, and my my politics have leaned uh, increasingly left over probably the last couple of years. Yeah, we worked with uh, Georgia Democrats. Um, I worked with them over the last week um, at polling places and, and canvassing voters throughout the state. To, yeah, helped turn Georgia blue. So we're I'm excited about that, glad about that, and. Hopefully it'll stay that way. Well, you guys did a heck of a job, so congrats. Well, I guess we're going to talk about uh, your evolu- your political evolution uh, tonight. So why don't we um why don't we get into it? Um, we're talking about a uh, single payer healthcare. Um, so I, I assume that means you were against it, and now you're more for it. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So why don't why don't we um why don't we start there? Why don't you talk about your your political background? Why you were not a fan of the idea? My existence has has been relatively uh, privileged, which is funny considering I'm black. That I would say that that's honestly, not not only black but from Tulsa. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, both my parents had advanced degrees, upper middle class life rather comfortable existence. Um, I became a lawyer because I just needed something to do. (laughs) Like an arduous process for me, Mm -hmm. anything like that. Um, As a result of that background, my politics historically were very sort of libertarian. Mm -hmm. Everyone needs to do, everyone needs to, find their own path in the world and you can't depend on others, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my, that, that was my politics probably from as far as I can sort of really had political conscience at all, probably like middle school through um, most of uh, college. Mm-hmm. And in law school, um, I really sort of started rethinking some things based on some challenges I was presented with um, regarding it became increasingly clear to me that America was not set up for this sort of meritocracy rise of the best in the ways that I had generally perceived it for so many years. Hmm. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah. So like, so we have the electoral college, right? Mm. And you think, Oh yeah, this different States need to be represented. Um, and this is just a system that we developed that it makes complete sense and is reasonable <laughs> and rational. But then you realize, no, um, this had a lot to do with the fact that we had this whole distinction of slavery mm-hmm. and competing social interests when this country was formed. And those competing social interests were baked into the Constitution in such a way that we wanted to make sure that those slaveholding states could preserve certain rights and duties and dignities for, for the Southern way of life or whatever. Hmm. Um, and we baked that in to, to, to make sure they could keep that power. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not, it wasn't really this, you know, noble experiment. It was, it was how do we preserve the, 
the way our society is functioning now. Mm-hmm. We sort of, mm-hmm. sort of accepted it as as is. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that you um, bring up the Electoral College on you know the night when the <laughs> presidential election is more or less decided. We'll see how things go okay. in future weeks, I guess. Um, but I, I feel like you know we seem to be having this conversation with increasing regularity as it becomes more and more likely that candidates lose the popular vote but still win the Electoral College. From what I know, which I'm not claiming any expertise, I mean, it, it sound, I, I think you're basically right that it was mainly a, a sop to, to slave states, that um, it increased their, you know, because slaves were counted at three-fifths of, at, as three-fifths of people. <laughs> uh, for purposes of representation, it increased the representation of, of the slave states. Um, is that... I mean, that's sort of where I'm getting, I mean, part of it is, so really what I'm getting at is we, the political realities that existed in America when it was formed caused the system that we have. Right. And, and right. those political realities were, we're, we want the vote, we want power to be vested in this contingency of landowning white men. Um, we want to continue to deny to anyone else. Mm-hmm. We want to continue to own slaves. And we want to ensure that we will never become upon a sort of political crisis where that really would be substantially challenged. Right. And so we came with a system of representation at the national level that is seeking to preserve that, seeking to preserve the status quo mm-hmm. um, rather than as the country change, allowing things to change with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the electoral college was, was was part of that. We need to we need to make sure that the status quo is maintained the way um, the way it the way it was in you know seventeen ninety or whatever. Right, right. And interestingly, it didn't work that well since we ended up having a civil war less than a century yeah. later. But <laughs> gosh darn it, they tried. Um, all right, so that was that was in your your law school days when you started to. Um, encounter stuff like that. Um, hmm. What do you think that says <laughs> about our education system that you have to get all the way to law school before you um, learn about the... Um, I mean, I've, I'd learned some things about it, but generally okay. it hadn't, I guess in, in certain ways, it hadn't sunk in how baked in these things were. Sure. It was, it was sort of like, yeah... The, the history of racism in this country is bad and is inconsistent with sort of the... My idea was racism is evil and bad and wicked and it's inconsistent with, with the spirit of what the founding was. And then you realize, no, um, the founding was in part to preserve these this social hierarchy. Right. As is. Right. Um, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't like... They're like, yeah, we these whole principles of liberty and freedom that we're espounding in these documents, um, we intend them to apply to our hearts intend them to apply to everyone, even though we can't social in the social reality model <laughs> have them apply to everyone. No, we never intended for them to apply to everyone. Yeah. Um, well, and obviously there's there's a tendency to think of the founding fathers as this divine set of geniuses who yeah. <laughs> knew exactly what they were doing and were building the fairest system they could for all eternity and how dare you question it. But I mean, the origin of the constitution, like the origin of almost any legislation is one of 
a series of very contentious compromises between people on a very large spectrum, you know, um, even on the slavery issue, all the way from idealists who wanted to get rid of it to people who felt iffy about it, but accepted it as like reality, you know, like an inevitable reality or whatever to people who were like very much in favor of it. You're talking about this process of kind of waking up from kind of, you know, this idealist libertarianism to more of a nuanced understanding of the source of the systems we have. Um, let me, let me ask you this, um, prior to law school, prior to encountering these ideas, had you thought seriously about the healthcare system or? I mean, I still, I mostly thought of it as this works for most people. Mm -hmm. This, I mean, the few it doesn't work for that sucks, but generally this is a, a, a decent system and way of, of managing uh, healthcare. Mm-hmm. And we just need to let the government sort of get out of the way and, and companies will inevitably make right and good decisions that will improve the quality of healthcare that we receive in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you get out of college, um, do you go kind of directly into malpractice law or what happens then? So after I got out of law school, I went, um, I sort, it was a, it was a really bad time economically. So it was 2010. Oh man. Um, <laughs> literally by all statistical data, the worst year to graduate law school in the history of this country. Wow. For, for finding gainful employment. So yeah. I really found what is known in the law field is a doc review job. And um, to tell you how dot review jobs are looked at, there was a website called, can I cuss on here? Sure, go for it. Um, called shitlawjobs.com. <laughs> and the job I had was on this website, um, just to give you a, an idea of how things were going. So I did that for a while, um, got married, and then... Um, about six months after that, I ended up in sort of med mal defense work mm-hmm. for a small firm in Oklahoma City. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I graduated undergrad in 07 with a degree in English and film studies. So I know the feeling. <laughs> At least a law degree is use, is useful in, in theory. Um, I don't know what I was thinking majoring, majoring in English, but um, at, at, at this point, when you, when you go into... Um, to, to malpractice law, um, are, are you still kind of leaning towards a, the, a, li- a more libertarian uh, understanding of healthcare law or yeah, have you I already mean, started it? I'm, I'm definitely still probably leaning pretty heavily there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, more open to different ideas than I was before. Sure. But what really sort of threw me for a loop was when, um, my wife started having health issues herself. Mm. Can you talk about that or? Yeah. So um, she has what is known known as PCOS, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Ooh. Um, And so dealing with with the reality of that um, and how much everything costs just to do sort of basic, um, get our basic needs met for that. Um, and it was like, this is the only service I have 
So my server libertarian brain went off as like, every other service I get, I know how much is I'm going to be paying mm-hmm. up front, right? Mm-hmm. So I buy a car, I know how much this is going to cost up front. Um, I go to the grocery store, I know how much my grocery is going to cost up front. Healthcare, it is completely random. Mm-hmm. Um, this the one medication is going to cost you a hundred dollars a month. Another one's going to cost you thirty. There's not a consistency. And then there's if you have to go into the hospital, if you need a procedure done, those type of things. And the costs are just so drastically different um, for services, and you will never know until you get the bill in the mail. Mm-hmm. And I'm a I fancy myself a moderately intelligent guy. Um, <laughs> and I read my health. I'm one of those few nuts who read this healthcare plan from, from cover to cover. And I can decipher from that <laughs> how much things would ultimately cost. <laughs> and you realize this just seems extremely, that was the first time I was like, this seems very irrational the way this is done <laughs> it's interesting um it's, it's interesting that it was a, a personal thing um considering you were already you know tangentially or you know semi directly involved in the industry um which may, i don't i don't know if you know may, maybe malpractice law is is a bit too far removed from from insurance but um yeah um Okay, so you realize how kind of insane the system we have in place is, <laughs> uh, which you know I, I I agree with you. Um, thank thankfully no one super close to me has ever had serious medical problems, um, so I haven't had to deal with that firsthand. Um, but yeah, I mean, where did where did that where did that take you then? Um, I mean, did you? I assume you didn't go straight from from that to like, you know, we need single payer now. Um, Did you or did you? I don't know. Okay, how do you have an effective one? How do you have an effective healthcare system where people aren't being placed in financial distress from literally a single um, procedure? And should people still have financial distress from a single procedure or condition ex- or anything like that? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Should people be going to, to the poor house because they had health issues? Mm-hmm. Um, so I start, started thinking about those things mm-hmm. and, and what you really realize is, I mean, something like well over half of the actual healthcare percent uh, expenditures we're already making right now are through sort of public programs, through Medicare, Medicaid. Right. Um, And so what happens is, okay, we have Medicare and Medicaid that are making the bulk of these, um, of this money that we're spending. And then we have a substantial uninsured population um, that when there's emergency medical care, the law requires the hospital facility to to treat them. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, they can't be paid for that. Um, and so what happens is the people in the middle, like you and me, mm-hmm. um, the, the obvious thing that a hospital, the rational thing that a hospital is going to do is try to choke as much money out of us and our insurance companies as possible. And 
that is simply not a sustainable model for how you effectively provide services to people, particularly considering one of the things that could help drive down our health costs is that people spent more time doing preventive health care. But if I have a medical issue, my the system is set up for me to say to to think I should go to a doctor. Mm-hmm. It's to say, how can I remedy this myself mm-hmm. rather than turning to um, some needed health care? And, mm-hmm. and, and most of the time that whatever I do takes a Advil, whatever, is going to be fine, right? But you have those scenarios where a guy is getting headaches every day, migraine-type headaches, et cetera, and it goes on for a while, and he's just sort of doing the over-the-counter type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then eventually he's like, I have to go to a doctor now. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, you have this tumor. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you had, you could have gone earlier and, and, and had a better sort of trajectory of your, your, your long-term health had you gone earlier. But the whole system incentivizes you not to do that because that is some inordinate amount of money out of your pocket every time you enter into that doctor's office. And once I sort of started thinking through these things, it's, it's basically one of two choices we, we have. Either we have a truly capitalistic system, which would mean you, we don't have Medicare, we don't have Medicaid, um, and hospitals can turn, uh, turn down patients whenever they choose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Of course, that result in 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 people people dying right. and and people dying based on some stuff that's preventable, stuff stuff that isn't preventable, but um, us essentially choosing as the sort of most um, prosperous country economically that's ever existed um, mm-hmm. that a certain portion of our population simply has to die based on their economic condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other end, you have the, the, the full um, state run medicine option. Now I'm not now when, when I say I'm sort of single payer, I'm I like, I don't know exactly how I feel about how it should work necessarily. Um, how uh-huh. it should be administered, you know, and, and there's, there's details on that. Um, but that to me seems our current system seems unsustainable and the free, the complete free market system to me seems unethical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I'm really left with this other third option, um, the single payer system, which seems, I'm not saying it's going to be perfect. I'm not saying it's going to magically cure things because I think a lot of the healthcare issues in America have to do with what we eat how our society functions with stress. Um, and a lot of, I've started, I've started doing keto and lost something like 50 pounds in the last three months. Wow. Congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations. And, and, and so I think a lot of this health stuff has a lot to do with personal, with some choices that we're making individually. Mm -hmm. I think our, our, our society is, is set up for us to make those choices. Like it's, it's, it's been really difficult for me. I have to make my own meals because basically you get anything. It just has a shit ton of 
carbs and sugar in it <laughs> from anywhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so I think we need to deal with that. And I think that would help a lot on the, um, how you pay for it or, or how it is administered, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think our current model can't, can't function because it screws over a significant portion of our populace who's, who's working, who's in the economy. Um, and I think our only option is to sort of develop some sort of single payer administration of the way we do healthcare. So are you a Medicare for all guy then, or? (laughs) I mean, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not particularly a fan of the way, Medicare's is necessarily run. Uh-huh. I think probably my the best description. My, my position would be, I don't know necessarily needs to be a federal um, thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe individual states sort of have their own Georgia Health, and that pays for you know pays for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not I, I'm I'm not sure on how I feel for Medicare for like I'm not opposed to it obviously, mm-hmm. um, but it's really difficult for me to the, 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 the libertarian part of me still um, is, is weary of bureaucracy. Um, <laughs> and so Medicare for all, just so many bureaucrats, snafus that um, would come with that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I, I, I guess the elephant in the room that has to be addressed is um there seems to be this huge um, <laughs> hurdle to getting there in the U.S., which is uh, when, when you start talking about, um, you know, state-based healthcare, single-payer healthcare. Immediately, all people hear is my taxes are going to go up. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I, I feel like I am aware of the fallacy there. But um, what, what would you say to convince those people? I mean, my thing is look at your – go look at your pay stub right now mm-hmm. and look at how much is taken out for Medicare right now. And then consider that your employer is also paying that same amount separately into health into your uh, Medicare, mm-hmm. right? And then you add that. Then go ask your employer how much they're paying for their private um, – to insure you under a private policy, mm-hmm. and you realize it's it's, it's pretty ridiculous um, how much is being charged overall for for you to get for you to be for you to be able to go to a hospital and get a five thousand dollar ER bill. You're still being you know paying five six hundred dollars a month to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, right. and once you you realize those things i think a, a lot of people's opposition one i think i the the polling data i've seen seems to indicate there's a there's a much stronger support at the at the base voter level for medicare for all than there is necessarily at sort of political elite and institutions mm-hmm. i think this is much more a problem of institutions um, our Senate, our Congress, getting them to get on board than I think it is with necessarily the general um, electorate mm-hmm. getting on board. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, we've seen it this this sort of election cycle. So Florida votes for Trump and also votes for a $15 minimum wage. Um, <laughs> it's because a lot of people are, are, are like, this would 
they can look at something like that and say, this would help me. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, there's going to be some increase in taxes, but if it's not, if that increase in taxes come from the basically the same sources they're coming for now for your health care, I mean, those are, those are, those are tangible decreases on your income. When your employer has to pay X amount of dollars for your friend benefits, um, that increases that decreases the, the the money available for your wages. So you're effectively being being taxed on it by by that already, um, mm. and simply change the name of or the way that I sort of divvied up and where that goes to, um, I think would be a lot less impactful on most people mm-hmm. um, than than people think. Well, let me ask you this because um, I'm curious um, since your livelihood obviously uh depends on the medical industry (laughs) to one extent or another um do you see if if this were to happen if if uh healthcare were to shift over to some sort of you know publicly provided system do you see that impacting uh your career at all i mean not really um what would probably i mean to a degree so the issue that comes up in in law is um at times, when you get um, healthcare workers that work for the government, you have the issues of, of what is known as sovereign immunity, mm-hmm. and, uh, the idea of, of the government um, having limited liability, or you having to go through certain administrative steps to impose liability on a government for mm-hmm. um, wrongful acts by their yeah. uh, employees. And so there's a there's a chance, you know, that this would increase the number of say state run medical institutions and a number of private corporations would get out of the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. But I think that is actually, I think that the chances of that happening are, are, or, or not necessarily the chances, but the, the impact of that overall in the healthcare industry would be less than, than what people think. I mean, mm-hmm. you can still make very good money running a hospital as a corporation Mm-hmm. at Medicare rates, if everybody's paying, if every single service that walks into your facility is paying. Right. Like if every single time you're going to get that bill, because I mean, we, we all know, like I have a I have a couple medical bills out right now. Like I'm paying them off slowly and that's generally how we do it now. Um, right. For the most part, they're not getting that consistent. The end of the month, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this check for this full service that I provided this past month. You know, mm-hmm. um, and a government program at least provides that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you can still make the industry profitable enough to where private corporations would still be in it um, mm-hmm. at a significant level. But I, I, I don't think it would have a significant impact on what I do. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine someone hearing. You know what? What was the word you used? Not 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 immunity, but what what for government employees? Um, oh, uh, it's, it's called sovereign. So sovereign immunity isn't sovereign uh, immunity. Yeah, isn't defensive immunity. So basically, we got this from England. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, it's you can't sue the king. Um, <laughs> is the idea? Yeah. But, uh, states have generally waived it to one degree or another. And there are ways around it to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the legal hurdle you deal with whenever you're dealing with claims against a um, government entity mm-hmm. or, or losses against a government entity. Right. Um, 
And so I, it, create, it creates it creates some extra issues that you don't have when you're suing so in a private entity, but mm-hmm. they're they're largely minimal, um, but they exist. I was just going to say, I can definitely hear someone hearing that, like, you know, and being horrified that, you know, if my doctor, my state, state sponsored doctor screws up, I don't have the right to sue. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's not like that at, at all. OK. Um, all right. Let me ask you this. Were you libertarian in earlier in life because you came from a, a more libertarian background? Were your parents libertarian-ish? Or? Oh, no. So no. my mom is is what I would describe as pretty conservative evangelical. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, I would describe as pretty far uh, left. Interesting. Uh, Bernie Sanders-esque um, type of type of political you know view Mm -hmm. um but so yeah it's not it's not in my family at all like i'm a it's really funny because in a lot of senses i'm the um i'm probably far to the left in a lot of ways than most of my family but pretty much my entire family my entire life has voted democrat Mm -hmm. across the board no matter what yeah so like same-sex marriage like no, like almost no one in my family, with a few exceptions, supports same-sex marriage. Like I'm like, what's the issue? What's the problem? And I've <laughs> always, and that's generally always been my my take on it, which um, has run me into issues with evangelicals. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm I'm not as committed to the quote-unquote pro-life position because of my libertarianism, which mm-hmm. runs me into issues. Um, but that's not how my family leaned at all. Hmm. Um, just so that, was, little quirk. that was your teenage rebellion then. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it was necessarily rebellion. I think it was sort of like, I mean, you're, you're, you're 13, you read on Anne Rand and you're like, yeah, that makes sense about the world. And then, you know, you're not 13 anymore. <laughs> eventually. And you realize, yeah, this 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 sounds like an insane person. Um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't get around to Atlas Shrugged until I was thirty, I think. So <laughs> that's probably for the best. Um, all right. Well, let me ask you this: how has how has your life changed since your beliefs changed, or maybe it hasn't? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if my life has necessarily changed. I think I feel like I've been going through this, this sort of slow burn process. Mm-hmm. Um, my my dad's convinced you'll be socialist enough um, soon enough, basically. <laughs> um, but I feel like I've been going through this slow burn process where I'm looking at the world differently than I looked at it, looked at it five years ago, ten years mm-hmm. ago. Um, like I don't, I think eighteen-year-old me would be like, "You're what happened to me," um, <laughs> and I hope to continue to grow in that respect. But I don't, I don't necessarily think my like it wasn't like some you know Damascus Road experience, mm-hmm. more than things percolating in the brain and and stirring in my life in such a way to where okay, this is where I am now, mm-hmm. in reality. So. I don't know if it's necessarily changed all that that much other than I mean I guess I I vote differently but not, <laughs> not even though I was 
involved heavily in the election last week. I'm not particularly fond of politics or politicians. Um, Who is? (laughs) So um, it's changed, but it hasn't, I can't really point to say this is, this is some really different thing I'm doing than what I was doing before. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate what you, um, maybe, I don't know if you said this or not, but (laughs) Um, there is something to be said for um, becoming increasingly aware of the systems we exist in as you get older. Like that, that's been my experience too of when I was younger, I definitely thought of the world as just individuals bouncing around, you know, interacting and uh, however they want. But as, as I've, as I've aged, I've definitely become more aware that we're kind of all stuck in these systems, whether we want to be or not. <laughs> like you were saying about the, the, the keto thing, like you can, an individual can say, Hey, I want to eat better. Um, but even, even if we want to, we're still stuck in a system that has become very, very efficient at funneling fairly unhealthy food to us. Um, and you have, you have to try very hard to do something else. Um, or if you say, Hey, I want to get more exercise. I'm going to stop. I'm going to start walking to more places while well, you're still stuck in a grid that was laid out with the assumption. Everybody is going to own a car and drive most places, you know? Um, yeah. So and I don't know if that's a profound thought, but <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I definitely relate to this this idea of you know I used to think people were more just individuals making choices, and now I'm just kind of like, well, we're all kind of trapped in this system that funnels us towards certain choices. So we kind of need to change the system if we want to change people on a mass scale, if if that makes sense. Um, no, I think I I generally agree with that with that sentiment. I'm still a um, I still have a, a a strong streak of rugged individualism in me, just mm-hmm. because as uh, as my wife says, I have um, a, she gave me this this psychology test. She's a clinical she's in this clinical psychology program. Um, she gave me a number of psychology tests throughout our marriage, um, and which is like I have one of the strongest she's ever tested for uh, internal locus of control, mm-hmm. um, where I'm sort of not uh, I'm not dependent on people's approval for things I do. So basically, like if I do something, it's solely because I want to do it. It's not like <laughs> I feel any s- sense of like duty to anyone else, um, <laughs> which I guess is sort of a good and bad thing. Um, yeah. But uh, so I still have that sort of rugged individualism, like, well, if you want to do this thing, you just, you know, do it, um, which isn't helpful advice as I'm learning raising a son. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I still I, I, I still think of people in sort of individual terms in a way that I think um, goes sort of against this. But I recognize they're. There are sort of social realities that they also exist in. Sure. And those, and those things interact with each other in a in a in good and bad in, in, in good and bad ways. And the more we can encourage those systems to, to interfere with people less. Because I mean part of it is I feel like the switch is part 
in part consistent with my libertarianism in the sense of if people have the freedom to go to a doctor whenever they need to or want to and, and make health decisions on what they're going to do, et cetera, um, that provides them actually more freedom. Mm-hmm. Our, our current system doesn't provide them the freedom to really make healthcare choices for themselves because it's dependent on, will my insurance company pay for this? Will, um, how much is going to cost me out of pocket? You know, it's, it's dependent on all these, all these factors that they don't control. I think in, in, in one sense, my libertarianism has helped me to sort of arrive at this conclusion because it, it, this gives me greater control over what you do as far as your health. Yeah, I heard an interview um, with with uh, Pete Buttigieg a while ago, and I, I but he said something that was really really striking to me, which was it was something along the lines of like I find it hard to understand how so many people um, for so many, for so many people the only thing they can imagine restricting their freedom is the government, you know. <laughs> Uh, which I thought was just a really interesting and concise way of putting it of that, you know, there's all these other entities in your life that can restrict your freedom, um, your, your employer, your uh, health, healthcare provider, et cetera, et cetera, you know, your landlord or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to have that conversation on a national level <laughs> about what true freedom really is and, what restricting freedom actually means. Um, I think, I think, um, I think a conversation like that is very much overdue. So I agree. Aside from your new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? I think people are way more nuanced than we'd like them to be at home. Um, and, and to be okay with feeling a sense of, of logical or philosophical inconsistency, even within your own self. Um, that consistency isn't necessarily a virtue. It can be. Mm. Um, but the whole sort of competing ideas in your head at the same time um, and recognize the legitimacy in both, I think, can be good for people. Mm. And I think the insistence, especially as a sort of someone who um, sort of in reform christian spaces um i think the idea of of everything having to be consistent at the same time i think is it is it some moral virtue i think it's a a coping mechanism for us to try to feel comfortable and justify whatever it is we think Mm -hmm. Um, and i think it's perfectly fine for me to say yes that's not consistent with this other thing that i think um but so what (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a certain wisdom to being able to say, you know, these two, these two, um, quote unquote facts or whatever, don't necessarily match up, but the problem might be my own limited, limited understanding of things, um, yeah. rather than the, the ideas themselves. Um, you know, and speaking as someone who's kind of left the reform tradition behind, <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I'm Lutheran these days, um, which, you know, to a lot of people sounds like barely even different, but, um, you know, hard. No, I, 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 I get the differences. We've, uh, I'm, I'm, so I, I'm very fond of Luther's views on, on things like commute and whatnot. And so, mm-hmm. um, 
I in a lot of ways like Lutherism better than than Calvinism. I just I'm just like this is where I'm at. Whatever. <laughs> no, for sure. <laughs> it's, it's, sure. Lazy, it's laziness on my part, really. It's not, <laughs> not really like okay, let me make sure I actually disagree with Lutheranism before I reject it. It's just like eh. I probably have a strong agreements on with this on things and strong disagreements, but this is where I'm at. So whatever. For sure. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> this hasn't been a, a religion heavy episode, so maybe it's not fair to listeners to drop religion <laughs> in at the end here, but um, no, I, I, I definitely think there's, there's merit to just like say, you know, God's put me here. I'm going to stay here and serve how I can like for sure. Um, what happened, what happened for me <laughs> was, uh, and you know, at least some of this story, but um, my wife was interning with a, a you know, a Presbyterian uh, campus ministry, which basically chewed her up and spit her out. Um, there was, you know, this whole big uh, morality scandal with the minister who was in charge of her. And um, basically after that experience, she said to me, you know, I don't think I can be a Presbyterian anymore, um, which I totally understood. Um, <laughs> so we just, we ended up going church shopping and we ended up at a, at a, at a Lutheran church. Um, and, you know, for a long time <laughs> in my life, I was, you know, I, I, I was pretty familiar with the differences in, um, the Presbyterian understanding of salvation versus the Lutheran understanding of, of it. And it was like, you know, I was, I was in this place of, but the Presbyterian mode makes sense, you know, like it's logical, everything fits yeah. together. Um, you know, and then when I'm looking at the possibility of maybe joining a Lutheran church, I, I go back to, um, you know, looking at the scriptures, at what the Lutheran confessions say at, you know, what the church fathers had to say and stuff and, and come to this place of like, yeah, you know, it's not, as logically consistent, but it is more consistent with what scripture actually says, you know, and it is more consistent with what the early church believed. And it's like, well, maybe it's not reasonable for me to understand completely something as, as esoteric as how God affects salvation, you know, like may, maybe having a purely logical understanding of it where everything fits perfectly together is actually the problem. Like maybe. Yeah. My, I, maybe. I, I, <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. I think, I think it's a very limiting way to look at problems and look at issues is to say whether or not, these two things can be, are consistent with each other. And that's funny coming from a lawyer, but, um, because I make arguments like it all the time. But I mean, <laughs> sometimes two things are true that don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Trinity makes no sense. I, mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't know. I've, I've read a thousand, a thousand explanations of it and it makes no logical sense <laughs> whatsoever. I'm like, yeah, whatever. All right. Now that we're like diving deep into religion, <laughs> I don't feel so weird about asking these three final questions. I ask all my guests, um, which are, you know, ontology, epistemology. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, I just, I feel like this, these sorts of questions are more important now than ever. Um, so why don't we, why don't we dive into those? Um, first off, what is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? I think, like I, I, I read through these before we got on, and I really never formulated good answers to any of them. I, <laughs> I think, um, 
so for me, it comes back to uh, the confessions as a confessional Presbyterian. Hmm. Um, for me, the identity is that I'm I'm a human being, which means I have worth and value because I exist. Mm-hmm. And that worth is in me regardless of how I feel about it because I was made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the extent of, and, and I have these factors about me. I'm black. Um, and that's part of my, the, the social position God has chosen to put me in. And mm-hmm. I embrace that part of me. Um, I'm also American. I embrace that part of me less. Um, mm-hmm. But these are sort of just realities of who I am. I'm a, I'm a human being. I was made in the image of God, and I'm black. Mm. And that's generally how I think of myself. And I think for other people, it be different, um, maybe a different order. Um, but those are sort of the orders of how I view myself. Mm. And so I think I did it, and, and I don't think I can define identity for anyone else. Mm. Um, that's how... Tell me who who's Jasper in his essence. That's what it is. When you say you embrace the identity of being American less, um, what what do you mean by that? I'm curious. I think of um, the place you're born as having, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this, as having less tangible uh, value to your experience, to, 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 to who you are than other things that are part of your identity. Um, so like everything, the physical me would be, could be exactly the same and simply have been born in France. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the sort of something that is just separate. I feel exists separate from, from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's a, it's a reality of, of, of where I was born and, and the circumstances surrounding my birth, but it exists sort of separate from me. Mm-hmm. It's not something I physically carry on my body anyway. That makes so sense. I identify less with me as an individual. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, second question is what is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? I think human beings are um, are wrecked souls. Hmm. Um, They're they're embodiments of 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 matter that was um, created to live in a world that's different fundamentally than this one, Um, and sort of from birth, they're trying to either trying to adjust to their surroundings or giving up, um, mm-hmm. trying to either do what they can to, 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 um, to survive in the fallen world or sort of, or sort of in some nihilistic, um, devolving. Um, I think that's true from, I think that's true for most people. Hmm. Um, so that would be my description is, is Rex souls. Finally. Wrecked Souls is also the name of my folk rock band. So, really? No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, and finally, what is truth? 
how do you know truth? How do you know when you found truth? What do you think? Um, I think there are certain, certain absolutes that exist. Um, they're just sort of factual, but I think truth often also is just lived experiences and um, of what's happened to you. So um, I don't know what it's like to to be a woman to have listened to Kamala Harris um, sort of deliver her acceptance speech and 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 feel the weight of of literally millennium of the oppression women have been put, put under and and feel a sense of 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 uh, happiness glee in terms of just that experience of this woman is vice president right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the truth of what a lot of women felt, you know, an hour and a half when that was going on. Mm-hmm. But I can't necessarily access it, right? Because mm-hmm. um, that's, that's that wasn't my uh, experience. So I think I think truth is what we what we know or can know about the world, and what we experience about it. Um, regardless of whether or not um, it's universal. Hmm. Yeah. My uh, daughter's kindergarten class had a a mock election. (laughs) You know, just everybody, every five-year-old vote for president event. Yeah. Whatever. Um, You know, and I haven't, I haven't talked um, with my kids all that much about politics, you know, because whatever, they're young. I, I don't, I don't feel like I necessarily have the words yet. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I asked her who, who she voted for and she was like, I voted for the girl, <laughs> which she meant <laughs> Joe Jorgensen, the libertarian candidate. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I told her that um, the girl did not win, but that the, the vice president was going to be a girl and she was less impressed by that. But <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, it's a we're past an hour, so we should we should wrap things up. Um, Jasper, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was no a problem. pleasure. Yeah. Um, before we go, do you have anything you wanted to pull, want to plug? A Twitter? Anything else? No. Um, generally, just ignored my tweets. Uh, <laughs> they're not very interesting whatsoever. Um, and actually, I just want to plug. You're spending a lot of time on Twitter. You should probably get off Twitter and also get off Facebook. Get off Facebook. That's my plug. Please get off Facebook if you're listening to this. Gosh, that is very good advice. <laughs> Unfortunately, those of us who are who are creators feel like we have to have a place to hawk our stuff. You know, <laughs> I got off Facebook uh, four years ago. It was one of the best decisions I've made in my life. Gosh, I imagine. I imagine. I. I I was interacting with a, another um another writer on on Facebook the other day and he was like, Yeah, if I didn't have books to sell, I wouldn't be here. And I, I was like, I think that's the I think that's the trajectory that every social media site follows is like people join and join and join until it hits a critical mass and then everybody starts getting on everyone's nerves and they all start leaving and eventually it dies off until it's like literally nothing but artists trying to sell their stuff. 
Yeah, that's what happened to MySpace. At some point, it became just a place for bands to try to sell you albums. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got on Facebook pretty early on, two thousand four. Um, oh wow! Yeah, back when I, I back think University of Kansas college. was like the thirtieth college that had it, and it was just wow. college students. Yeah. Um, the only good thing that I ever got from Facebook is some dates, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah. I thought I, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm always the contrarian who doesn't want to be part of the big new thing. So like I was in college when Facebook was getting big among college students and I just fought it and fought it until like 2006 when I got engaged to my now wife and she was like, you need to get on Facebook so I can mark myself as engaged. <laughs> <laughs> That was what finally got me on Facebook, but now I'm just kind of stuck there because I have to tell people to buy my books. So (laughs) anyway, if you're listening to this, buy my books. Um, But more importantly, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. Thanks again, Jasper. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington or go to my website, LukeTHarrington.com. I'll see you next time. are still picking over the results of the 2020 election, trying to figure out exactly what they mean. Um, What we can be fairly certain about is that never Trump beat Trump. Um, I don't think Joe Biden was a candidate a whole lot of people were excited about, but um, they were very much excited about voting Trump out of office. Um, So that's what we got. Um, We didn't exactly get the blue wave, quote unquote, a lot of people were hoping for. Um, The Senate, for all practical purposes, is still up for grabs, um, depending on how the runoff elections in Georgia go. So, you know, um, good luck, Jasper. (laughs) Um, Meanwhile, the House of Representatives still under Democratic control, but they did lose a few seats. Um, so, you know, clearly it was not a democratic blowout. Um, now the thing about the American election system is it's pretty, it's pretty easy to pick a candidate. It is not easy at all to communicate to the world why you pick that candidate. Um, there is such a thing as exit polls, but, um, Nobody really takes exit polls all that seriously. They're not particularly reliable and they don't shed a lot of light on things. Um, But one interesting narrative I've seen gleaned from these election results is every single Democratic House member who openly advocated for Medicare for all kept their seat, Um, which... You know, there's geography to take into account there, but it's not super easy to argue with, right? Like, this is clearly a fairly popular policy. Um, And what's interesting, um, and Jasper might have hinted, hinted at this a little bit, is that these progressive fiscal policies, raise the minimum wage, Medicare for all, et cetera, Um, surveys typically find that these are actually really popular ideas. Um, when people are just asked about them as ideas, 
Now, can you trust the polls? Eh, mostly, you know, they were off by a few points in this election, but they weren't off by that much. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and the election results in Florida, again, are pretty good evidence of that, as Jasper pointed out, right? People voted narrowly for Trump there, but they also voted to set the minimum wage for the state at $15 an hour. Um, and what's interesting is that we have all these very popular progressive fiscal policies like out in the ether, like everybody seems to want these, um, but neither of our major parties is really meaningfully pursuing them. Um, now, obviously that's true of Republicans, but even Democrats, I mean, they squashed Bernie Sanders in the primary really, really quickly this year. Um, now lately I've been reading, uh, Thomas Frank's latest book. It's called the people know a brief history of anti-populism. Um, it's a great book, highly recommend it. I learned a lot from it that I didn't already know. Um, and one of the more interesting things, more basic things that I learned from it was that, uh, populism used to refer to an actual political party, um, and I had no idea, which is a little embarrassing to admit. Um, these days, usually you hear populism used as kind of an all-purpose synonym for demagoguery. Um, there are a lot of people who called Donald Trump a populist uh, just because he wasn't afraid to curse and say racist things occasionally. Um, but once he was in office, what you saw was policy that was at best indifferent to the average person and more or less just more pro-big-business neoliberalism. Um, now, Thomas Frank points out that that's not what populism actually was back when the People's Party, hence populist, was actually formed in Kansas in the late 19th century. In brief, what populism was, according to Frank, was essentially what became the New Deal uh, about 50 years later. Um, and it, because that's how long it took, you know, um, that's how long it took for, um, the populace to actually gain real power. Um, in other words, populism properly understood is not about tone or about audience. It's about a specific set of policy goals that try to rebalance the economy in a way that doesn't so heavily favor those already on top. Um, and Frank points out the populace, the original po populace, the People's Party, the people who called themselves the populace were not anti-intellectual. Um, and in fact, they were huge proponents of making education available to the masses, uh, making the classics, the great books available to the masses. Um, and they weren't racists, or at least they weren't unusually racist for their time. Um, and in fact, part of the populist project when it found its way to the South was to try to unite the black and white working classes, because it was clear that if they united and stood up, the ruling classes wouldn't be able to stay in power. Um, now the people's party, in its day was 
kind of a colossal failure, um, like nearly all third parties are in this country. Um, Never elected anyone beyond some local offices. Um, Did manage to briefly take over the Democratic Party uh, when they nominated William Jennings Bryan, who was, like me, a Nebraska boy. Um, He ran for president twice on the Democratic ticket, uh, lost both times. And I mean, you probably know the rest. He got involved in the Scopes monkey trial, embarrassed himself there and died kind of as persona non grata. Um, But despite the fact that populism failed uh, in its heyday, if that makes sense, um, it did eventually become ascendant under FDR, uh, under the New Deal. Um, And as Frank points out, FDR never used the word populism, um, but the policies he ended up championing were more or less the same policies that populism championed, you know, strengthening unions, getting off the gold standard, guaranteeing a certain level of financial welfare for the working class. Um, And by pursuing these policies and uniting the working class behind him, FDR managed to win landslide after landslide um, in the four presidential elections he ran in, um, which you can no longer do. But anyway, that coalition of the working class is clearly a coalition that has since fallen apart. Um, And it's fallen apart the exact lines you would expect it to. The white working class and the non-white working class Um, And the Republican Party has managed to capture the white working class through nothing more than vulgar spleen venting. (laughs) I I don't think it's too controversial to say that was literally the only thing Trump brought to the table. Um, And meanwhile, the Democratic Party just kind of takes the votes of the non-white working class for granted. substitutes what you might call woke pieties for meaningful change. Um, And it seems to work. Um, Now, as then, if you keep the working class divided, you don't have to answer to them. And we've got a lot of hand-wringing going on about how America is divided, America is divided. And if you want to know why, like, that's why people are divided because it's profitable to keep them divided as long as the people at the bottom hate each other the people at the top have nothing to worry about anyway i'm gonna cut things off there um do check out that book uh the people know by thomas frank it's the people comma and O. Um, makes more sense if you see it written probably than if you hear it anyway. Um, thanks for listening to the show. If you like what I'm doing, please take a second to go on Apple podcasts or stitcher or whatever the heck you're listening on. Give me a little five-star review, four-star review, three-star review. Eh, I don't care. Whatever. Um, if you want to support me financially, I do have a Ko-Fi set up. It's ko-fi slash changed my mind. Um, and if you go there, you can toss me three bucks with which I may buy a cup of coffee, um, which I assume is where the 
the site's name comes from. It's like coffee plus co-finance, maybe plus Wi-Fi or hi-fi. I don't know. Um, but ko-fi slash change my mind. If you don't want to do that, you can buy my book. Um, my book is Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem. Strange stories from the Bible to leave you amused, bemused, and hopefully informed. Uh, written with a general audience in mind. It's published by HarperCollins Christian, uh, but written with a general audience in mind. Anyone in your life who wants to learn more about the Bible would probably enjoy it. Um, Christmas is coming up. They tell me it would make a great Christmas gift. Who are they? I don't know. Um, the voices in my head, I guess. Uh, my novel is also back in paperback, and I am very happy with the way the cover came out. Uh, I designed it myself, and I'm not going to pretend to be Michelangelo or anything, but it came out much better than it probably should have, given my complete lack of training in graphic design. So I'm happy with that. Uh, check that out. It's called Ophelia Alive, A Ghost Story. It's available on Amazon. Go find it. Um, yeah, I want to thank... Jasper for coming on the show. Jasper's a cool guy. Thanks, Jasper. I want to thank Jonathan Clausen for editing the podcast. I want to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the podcast. Those guys are great. Check them out at ravencreeksc.com. And finally, I want to thank you for listening to Change My Mind. And please don't be afraid to change your mind. Mm-hmm.